Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us again from the book of Exodus, chapter 1. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now join us every Thursday and Friday as we study the book of Exodus. Now, we tried some cheaper alfalfa from other parts of the country. It was a lot cheaper. And boy, what a difference. That alfalfa was tough, thick-stemmed. When you squeezed it in your hand, you just felt like you were grabbing a pincushion full of needles. I mean, it was just terrible, and it didn't smell good, and I wouldn't put it in my mouth. So that alfalfa just couldn't compare with the alfalfa that comes from the first cuttings of Imperial Valley. That's the best of the best. And it used to make the hair, the coats on our goats real shiny. Now, why does the Imperial Valley yield so much of the best alfalfa? Well, it's the ground. It's the ground. It's very fertile ground. I don't know where it came from, but it's, got, it's so rich in the minerals and the nutrients. And evidently, a lot of animals died there. The dead animals ended up there somehow because the Imperial Valley is actually a desert. It's very much a desert. It's one of the hottest, driest places on Earth. And up until the 1930s, that ground grew nothing but cactus and tumbleweed. But in the 1930s, a great change happened because that was the beginning of the construction of the largest aqueduct system in the world. And it was started to bring to the water to the Imperial Valley, and it was finished in 1942, and it was called the All-American Canal. And so the All-American Canal today carries 200,000 gallons of water per second. That's how much water is transported by this canal. 200,000 gallons of water per second. And when that Colorado River water floods into the ground of the Imperial Valley, that ground produces just overnight, just unbelievable amounts and quality. What's the difference? The water. So what do we have in Egypt? In Ethiopia, the Blue Nile starts. And it meets up with the White Nile that has already come from Central Africa and traveled all those miles. And as it does, it picks up minerals and nutrients from all those soils that it moves through those African countries all the way until it reaches down to Egypt, the Egypt then like the Imperial Valley. And that desert then in Egypt, as the Nile overflows its banks like the All-American Canal, it deposits those great minerals and those, those nutrients on both sides. And Egypt just bursts forth with blossoms. Now, when Jacob and his family first arrived in Egypt, they were shepherds. And for them to come in to this place, I mean, they had come from Canaan into Egypt. And although it wasn't blossoming at that time because there was a drought, it would. And Joseph had traveled and traversed all throughout Egypt. And he knew that the very best land was in a place called Goshen at the end where it was very flat before, just before the Nile emptied into the Mediterranean Sea in that land of Goshen. And so what we read in Genesis 47, 6 is this. The land of Egypt is before thee. This is Pharaoh speaking to Joseph. He knew also the best of the land. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land, 
Make thy father and brethren to dwell in the land of Goshen. Let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. So they were so well provided for. They was, it was a, like a dream come true when that land began to blossom again. Because don't forget, they came during this drought times. But they knew what that land would become. And they got to see the transformation of the land. And, Joseph, and Pharaoh said those words to Joseph. Everything changed and everything was different for them, for the little family, because Joseph, Joseph had spoken to Pharaoh, and Joseph was loved by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, in the best of the land, make them dwell in Goshen. But they knew it was all because of their Joseph. And as they looked at the land, and they looked at this place where they were brought into the land of Goshen, the very best land in Egypt, they could thank Joseph for being able to live in that land and being, provide them with the food until the water started again. Joseph had literally saved the lives of the Egyptian people. And the Egyptians loved and they respected Joseph. They had everything in Egypt, the Egyptian people, because of Joseph. Everywhere the new family, Joseph's family, went in Egypt, they were known as, oh, there's Joseph's family. There's Joseph's family. And because Joseph was loved, they were loved in Egypt. And they owed everything to Joseph. The family did as well. But then those words come, which we read in Exodus 1-6, almost like a shock when we read these words, and Joseph died. Joseph died. You know, those were the same last verse in the book of Genesis. The last verse in the whole book of Genesis reads like this. So Joseph died. And then when we come and tie in here in Exodus 1, we read the same words in verse 6. And Joseph died. And Joseph died. What a shock. Especially for the family. Especially for Joseph's family. He died. And the question comes to them, what's now? What is going to happen to us now? Are we going to die also like Joseph did? Joseph's dead. How can this possibly be? How can we go on without Joseph? Joseph, who brought us literally from death to life, Joseph is dead. Joseph, who transformed our lives From misery to happiness, he's dead. Joseph, who fed us. Joseph, who protected us. Joseph, who reunited us as a family. Joseph, who showed us how to forgive. Joseph is dead. What's going to happen to us now? And it's natural. We can understand for them to feel that way that they did with the death of Joseph. But the truth is, it wasn't all about Joseph. It was all about God. God used Joseph to bring them from death to life. God used Joseph to bring them from misery to happiness. God used Joseph to feed them. Joseph died, but God didn't die. 
And so it was important for them to understand the danger of them to latch on and over-rely on Joseph. And it's so easy for us to do that in life. It's so easy for us to latch on to someone in life and think, there's no life if I lose that person. It's so easy for us to see those whom God has used in our lives and brought into our lives as to say they're indispensable to us. We don't know what we would ever do without her, without him. And when we take that position, it's very offensive to God. When we say, I don't know what I'd ever do without her, without him, then God says, well, what am I, chop liver? We have a tendency to over-rely on people. That's what we do. Instead of seeing that we only have one that we must have, and this is so well put to us by King David in one of his psalms, Psalm 73, he puts it beautifully to us. Really, the way he puts this, it's a guide to us. It's an instruction to us. It's a roadmap for our lives. In Psalm 73, 23 through 25, he says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. If we're really honest, those words, there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee, they're not easy. They're not easy for us to say. They're not easy at all for us to say. Because it's so easy for us, and we do this. We latch on to someone, and we think there's no life on earth if I lose that person. Maybe it's the person who led you to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can't imagine life without that person. Maybe it's a wonderful father, a wonderful mother, who was always there for you. And the thought, life without my mother, life without my father, I can't say there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Maybe it's a wonderful spouse. Maybe it's a wife or a husband. Maybe it's the person you've spent your whole life with. And the thought of life without that spouse makes it not easy at all to say there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Maybe it's a best friend. A best friend who would do anything for you. The thought of life without that best friend, you just can't really say. There's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Maybe it's a pastor who's always been there for you when you needed counsel and when you needed help. The thought of life without that pastor, you just can't say. There's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. You can't say that to God. And it just seems like that's the problem that we have. And God says, hold it, wait. You need to learn how to say, there's none upon earth that I desire besides God. And to get away from this over-reliance on, this latching on to. You know, Moses had this problem. Moses very much had this problem of latching on with an over-reliance. It's funny for us to think of that. Moses, the great Moses, the friend of God, the great leader of the Jewish people, but he did. 
he had this problem. And one of those times was actually in the beginning of his calling there when God had called him from the burning bush and spoken to him and they had this little back and forth discourse of Moses saying, oh no God, you got the wrong man. I'm sorry, you made a mistake, but you need a man. Let me tell you who you need, God. You need a man who's eloquent, who's fast on his feet. I'm just not your man. And this is how it went in Exodus 4, 10 through 14. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, for I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of whom thou wilt send. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. So when Moses responded to God's calling with, uh, I'm sorry, you must have made a mistake, Lord. You got the wrong man that I'm not eloquent and I'm not quick on my feet. That made God mad because then, in essence, God was saying to Moses, Moses, what am I, chop liver? Who made the mouth? Who made the person to either be dumb or speak or the eye to see or be blind? Now, that's when God made to Moses a tremendous promise. Oh, what a promise this is. We latch onto this promise and say, I'll take it. It's a great promise. He said, I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Those are great, great words. A great promise. That's a promise to latch onto. That's a promise to the solution of when you got to speak and you don't feel that you have the ability or that you're not quick. That's when God says, don't be afraid on the spot, because on the spot, I'll be with you, I'll teach you. Now, Moses, he didn't quite see it that way. And that's when God got really angry and said, okay, Moses, you want someone to latch on? I'll give you someone to latch on. Here he comes. Enter one, your brother Aaron, the Levite. He can speak for you. I know he speaks well. He's a good speaker, Moses. He doesn't stutter. He's quick on his feet. He's eloquent. Latch on, Moses, and you'll be sorry you did because there's going to come a little matter called the golden calf, which you're going to sit there and say, oh, why did I ever depend on that, Brother Aaron? Well, Moses had another one of those times when he felt that he had to latch on and over-rely on someone other than God, and that was the time when Moses was the sole leader of millions of Jewish people in the desert. Such a job I would not wish on anybody. And at that time, who should come along? It's Hobab. Now, who is Hobab? Hobab was one of his wife's relatives. We really don't know very much about him, but he was one of Moses' wife's relatives. Who is Moses' wife? Zipporah was her name. Zipporah, oh yeah, we remember her. She was the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian. Here's what we read about him. In Exodus chapter 4, we only have to turn there to read what occurred in Exodus 4, 24 through 26. So it says about Zipporah, And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him, that'd be Moses, and sought to kill him. That's not a good day. 
when God seeks to kill you, that's a bad day. So God is seeking to kill Moses here. Then in verse 25 it says, Then Zipporah took a sharp stone, that'd be not a knife, that'd be a stone, a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son. That's drama. And cast it at his feet, that'd be Moses, and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. That's not a pleasant family scene. All right? So there we have this little family disagreement, evidently. It's very mysterious, two verses. But we can piece together some fact. She had convinced Moses not to circumcise their son. Fact. Moses went along with her on that. Fact. God did not appreciate Moses not circumcising his son. In fact, God sought to kill Moses over that. And then lots of drama as she grabs her son and a sharp stone. I can't imagine what this must have been like. And she circumcises her son with a sharp stone and no anesthetic that we read about. And then in anger... And by the way, this is going along as as God is seeking to kill Moses. And then in anger, she throws the foreskin at Moses and yells to Moses, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. And when God let Moses go, just in case he didn't hear the first time when she said that, she repeats these wonderful words of love from a wife to a husband. A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. That's what it says. A bloody husband thou art, says in verse 26. So he let him go. That would be God let Moses go. So he let him go. Then she said, a bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. Now, apart from that little disagreement, we could imagine they had a wonderful home full of peace and harmony. I don't think so. And I don't think that Moses saw Zipporah as a candidate for him to latch onto and rely on after that. Because that's the last time that he tried that, in other words, to not obey God, and because God almost killed him. So this is Moses' wife, Zipporah, now that we've had a wonderful introduction to her. She obviously is not a believer. Zipporah's father is a priest of Midian, so there's no reason to think that he is a believer. And now one of her relatives, Hobab, comes on the scene, likely also not a believer. And Hobab decides to pay Moses a visit in the desert. How nice. And it seems he happens to have caught Moses in one of Moses' mood of, I've just got to latch on to someone. I've got to rely on someone. Millions of Jewish people looking to me to lead them. Millions of Jewish people with millions of complaints about everything under the sun. I'm going out of my mind. We can really appreciate how he's feeling here. And so he's in one of these moods that he feels that he's, he needs somebody. I need some help. Help. I need someone. So it says here about their talk together between Hobab and Moses at this time. In Numbers 10, 29 through 32, we read these words. And Moses said unto Hobab, the son of Reguel, the Midianite, Moses' relative, We are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it you. 
come thou with us, and we will do thee good. For the Lord has spoken good concerning Israel. And he said unto him, that would be Moses, I will not go, but I will depart to mine own land and to my kindred. And he said, Leave us not, I pray thee, for as much as thou knowest how to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. And it shall be, if thou go with us, yea, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will we do unto thee. That was Moses speaking. That was really sad. That was hard to read, hard to say, as we see really a pathetic state that Moses is in. He's begging this man, this lost man, this man who's not a believer, this man who is outside the commonwealth of Israel. And we find Moses here begging Hobab, don't leave, please don't leave. This is really sad. And poor Moses is sitting here begging and telling this lost person, Hobab, that without him, Moses says, I don't know where or how I'm going to camp in this wilderness. Moses is saying to this lost person, without you, I won't be able to see because I need you for eyes. He's promising to make it worth Hobab's while if he just agrees, please don't leave, please don't leave, please don't leave. And Hobab refuses and said to Moses, I won't go, I will not go, but I'll depart to my own land and to my kindred. Now, that must have broken Moses' heart, and Moses must have been very disappointed. And there's a lesson there for us, because whenever we do what Moses did here, latch on, over-rely on someone, and in this case it was dramatically not the right one, and there's only right one right one, there's God. Whenever we try to latch on and over-rely on someone other than God, And you know what you can expect and what I can expect, what we can expect? We can expect that God will for sure make it so that person disappoints us, so that person turns us down, so that person just leaves us or just is taken away from us. You know, there's a great phrase in the hymn, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Goes, stand up, stand up for Jesus. And then it says, The arm of flesh will fail you. Who was Hobab? The arm of flesh. And we can just imagine the scene as Moses is turning away with his heart broken from Hobab. Hobab has just turned him down, says he's leaving him, and Moses is walking back from Hobab. We can imagine God meeting Moses and saying, Why are you so down, Moses? Why is your head down? Why is your heart down? And then Moses tells God, Hobab just turned me down. And we can just hear God saying, what would you need him for? And Moses would say, I needed him to tell me how to camp in this wilderness. I needed him for eyes. And God, we can say, you needed him to tell you where and how you should camp and for eyes? Moses, what am I, chop liver? You know, that's really the title that you can put on all this. God says, what am I, chop liver? It was just very offensive to God. And it is offensive to God. Whenever we latch on and over-rely on someone other than God, it's very offensive to God. And we can hear God say to us, what am I, chop liver? 
So this passage in Numbers 10, 29 through 32, we can put a title on it. What am I, chopped liver? And when it says in Exodus 1, 6, and Joseph died, that was the time for the Jewish people to say to God, God, there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. There's none. There's not Joseph. There's not Pharaoh. There's not even this place of Goshen to live in. No one, no place, no thing upon earth that I desire beside thee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, you help us. You help us, Lord, to be disappointed when we overly rely on, when we latch on to someone, someplace, something, and we don't say, there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. We thank you for your training, your faithfulness, your chastening, your discipline, so that we are brought by our great instructor to say, Lord, there's none, there's no place, there's no thing, there's no one on earth that I desire beside you. Keep working with us, Lord, and thank you for doing it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Have you ever wondered what the most frequently asked questions are by the Jewish people? Well, Tom Cantor has answered all of them, all in one book. It's called Frequently Asked Questions That Jewish People Have, and you can get a copy of this booklet. Call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. With nearly 60 pages of notes and questions such as where was God during the Nazi disaster and other Jewish-related questions, you need a copy, 1-800-247-3051. Once again, that's 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week.